Genesis chapter 45 tonight, and we find ourselves in the life of Joseph. Joseph has been bringing his brethren to a point of contrition uh, through his uh, behavior. Uh, Joseph, of course, is the uh, second in command in Egypt, and uh, we find ourselves in chapter 45 that uh, Joseph finally breaks down and reveals to his brethren who he is. And he makes a statement concerning his life that I think is quite profound. And I believe we can gain some encouragement from it tonight. Genesis chapter 45, beginning in verse number 1. The Word of God says, Then Joseph could not refrain himself before all them that stood by him. And he cried, Cause every man to go out from me. And there stood no man with him, while Joseph made himself known unto his brethren. And he wept aloud, and the Egyptians in the house of Pharaoh heard, And Joseph said unto his brethren, I am Joseph, doth my father yet live? And his brethren could not answer him, for they were troubled at his presence. And Joseph said unto his brethren, Come near to me, I pray you. And they came near, and he said, I am Joseph your brother, whom ye sold into Egypt. Now therefore be not grieved, nor angry with yourselves, that ye sold me hither. For God did send me before you to preserve life. For these two years hath the famine been in the land, and yet there are five years in the which there shall neither be earing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve you a posterity in the earth, and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So now it was not you that sent me hither, but God. And He hath made me a father to Pharaoh, and Lord of all his house, and a ruler throughout all the land of Egypt. Let's pray together. Lord, I love you. I want to thank you for the time you've given us. Lord, we're not promised tomorrow. We're not promised the next ten seconds. But, Father, you've given us the opportunity once again to come into your house. And so I believe you have a present work that you desire to do in our minds and hearts and lives. And I just pray that work would be accomplished tonight. I believe you're capable of it, Lord. I believe your word is fit for it. Uh, Lord, I believe your spirit is mighty to perform this work. But I understand and know we have to be willing. So I pray you'd help us tonight to be willing. Uh, If there's any area of our life that's not surrendered to you, I pray you'd show it to us and help us to deliver it over unto you, to place it in your hands, that, Father, you might do the work, that you might gain the victory, that you might get the glory. And we'll be sure to thank you for it. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. I'm fascinated by what Joseph says in verse number 8, in the very first phrase. He's talking about what he has experienced concerning trouble in his life over the past twelve or so years. And he says this to his brethren in verse 8, So now it was not you that sent me hither, but God. I want to preach tonight, if I can, on this thought, seeing providence in our problems. Every one of us, we face problems in our life. Things we didn't ask for, things we wouldn't want, things we wish we could get rid of, uh, circumstances we wish had turned out differently. Uh, trials that we wish had never come our way. And Joseph's life was this way as well. In fact, we might say that the first part of Joseph's life, the part that we're so familiar with, was a life that was marked with persecution and affliction. But one of the things that helped Joseph to go through and to get through what he was experiencing, and one of the things that God used to his glory, is that Joseph learned how to examine the problems he was going through and to look for and to identify the providencing of God in what was going on. In fact, he learned this to such a great extent that when he was all said and done, he could look at his brethren that had perpetrated all manner of betrayal and wickedness upon him, 
and we can say, hey, listen, you may have thought it was you, but it was God working the whole time. Let me make two statements about that statement. One, uh, the day that you learn that truth is the day that you gain victory over the vast majority of your adversaries. When you learn that no matter what they do, God has already preempted and co-opted their evil thoughts towards you and is already working it together for our good and His glory, that's the day that the battlefield clears. That's the day that you march victorious when you realize that God already has them beat before they've ever drawn their first arrow back. Let me make a second statement about it. That's a hard thing to learn. When we read this, I'll confess to you that were it to be anybody in the Word of God saying this but Joseph, we might have a problem with it. Were it to be Joseph, but we did not have his history detailed for us, we might have a problem with it. But when Joseph speaks this, he speaks from a a place of wisdom and of experience. He is a young man at this time. In fact, we probably believe he's somewhere in the neighborhood of 30 years old. You know, that's when folks are usually their most handsome and wise. Amen? And uh, he was about 30 years old when he says this. But he has literally experienced a lifetime of suffering in the past 12 years. Joseph went through things that you and I will never face in that period of time. And so when he says this, it's not empty, it's not hollow, it's not fake. We're talking about somebody that's been through the fire and can look back and say, hey, despite all the evil in my life, I can see God working good the whole time. What are some of the things that Joseph went through? Let me give you a little bit of uh, Joseph's history. You probably already know it, but I'll share it with you just to keep it fresh on your minds. Joseph is the uh, son of uh, uh, Jacob, and Jacob, of course, is the patriarch. We know him by the name of Israel oftentimes. Uh, Jacob was the brother of Esau, and uh, Joseph was his beloved son. Uh, Jacob loved Joseph more than he loved all the rest of the boys. And really, it was for one very simple reason. Uh, Joseph was the son of Rachel. Uh, Jacob's wife, whom he loved so dearly and uh, and so uh, tenderly. And uh, he felt a connection to Rachel through Joseph, uh, his son. And so uh, jo- Jacob loved Joseph with all of his heart, insomuch that he made a special coat, just so when people saw all of his sons, they'd know there was something special about Joseph. Well, as you can imagine, sibling rivalry, uh, sibling rivalry being what it is, his brethren didn't like that. They began to be jealous over Joseph. They began to hate him. Then one day Joseph uh, did something that you ought to learn real young. If you've got older siblings, you ought to learn real young to keep your mouth shut. Amen. That's just a survival thing. But Joseph did not do that. Joseph, instead, he got a vision from God. Uh, He said that he imagined they were all out uh, binding wheat together and and harvesting wheat, and that they each had their own sheaves of wheat, and that all of a sudden, all of the sheaves of his brethren bowed down and did obeisance before his sheaf. And he goes and tells big brothers this, (laughs) and they didn't like that. And then later on, he has another dream where uh, all of the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars, which is a picture of his entire family, bow down before him and worship him. His brethren hated him, the Bible said, because of these things. And uh, the Bible says Jacob kept him in his heart, but his brethren hated him and despised him for it. And so one day, uh, Jacob sends Joseph to go check on his brethren that are in the field. They're out tending their flocks. And I'd remind you, when they went and tended their flocks, it would take days, sometimes even weeks, uh, to take place. And so Jacob says, I wonder how my boys are doing. I'm going to send Joseph out to see him. 
So Joseph goes and he finds him in a place called Dothan. And uh, when he comes upon his brethren, as he's approaching them, they hatch a scheme and a plan. They decide they're tired of Joseph. They're going to kill him. And so they get ready to kill him whenever he gets close to him. But then all of a sudden, Reuben speaks up. He's the oldest. And Reuben says, listen, we shouldn't kill him. Let's not have his blood on our hands. Instead, let's cast him in a pit and let nature take its course and kill him. And that way we won't have this blood on our hands. And that way we can, when we, uh, our father asks about him, we can say, we didn't kill him, we didn't kill him, we didn't kill him. So they take him and throw him in that pit. And Reuben says this because he intends on coming back later and rescuing him. And so Reuben leaves, and then all of a sudden the rest of the brethren are sitting around and they see a uh, Midianitish uh, caravan of traders traveling through the desert. And Judah has an idea. He says, listen, what we ought to do, instead of killing them, that ain't going to put no money in our pockets, we ought to pick them up out of that pit and sell them into slavery and we can get money for it. And we'll be all the better. And so that's what they do. They take Joseph, they sell him into slavery, they take that beautiful coat that his father Jacob had made him, and they slay a beast and cover it with blood and rend the coat. And they go back home and they tell their daddy Jacob, they say, we don't know what happened to Joseph, but we found this coat. Is this his coat? And he says, of course it is. And Jacob says, well, my son is dead. He's been murdered by some beast. So when you do the cut scene, you know, these movies that have the cut scene, and you look over, you'll see Joseph on his way down to Egypt. He arrives as a slave in Egypt. When he gets there, he's bought by a man by the name of Potiphar. And uh, Potiphar buys him to be a slave and brings him into his house to wait on him and to serve him. And uh, Joseph did something that most of us ought to learn to do. You get in a situation you don't like, you just keep serving God and doing your best. And God will change something eventually. Just keep serving God and doing your best, and God will change something eventually. So that's what Jacob does, or Joseph does. He just keeps serving God. And Potiphar begins to see that as long as Joseph is his servant... His uh, his grain uh, piles just keep getting bigger, and his uh, gold purse just keeps getting fuller. And God is blessing the household because of Joseph's diligence and faithfulness. Then, of course, we preached just a few weeks ago about the temptation of Potiphar's wife, how that Potiphar's wife sets her eye upon Joseph, uh, wants to have a relationship with him. Joseph resists temptation, refuses to do so. Uh, finally, it, it gets to a point where uh, she tries to uh, make him and force him to lie with her, and so he just turns and runs, and she grabs his coat and hangs on to it. And whenever Joseph is out of the house, Potiphar's wife, she thinks, Oh man, I'm in trouble now. He's going to tell everybody what's been going on. He's going to tell folks I've been trying to get after him. And so she comes up with this plan. She says, hey, I'll just accuse him of trying to abuse me. And she cries. See, that thing ain't nothing new. Amen. And she cries out and she says, oh, the, uh, my husband has brought the Hebrew in to mock us and to, to ill-treat us and to treat us wickedly. Potiphar, in a rage, he has him to take Joseph and throw him into prison. And for two years, Joseph is down in the prison. And Joseph, you know, he did something. Uh, he was in a bad situation, so he just kept serving God and trusted the Lord and kept doing his best. And the same thing that happened to Potiphar happened to the prison warden. All of a sudden, everything's running smoothly. God's blessing, God's honoring. And so Joseph rises to a place of prominence within the prison. One day, he's talking to two individuals, or he's overhearing two individuals. They're not regular prisoners, they're royal prisoners. One of them's a a baker, and one of them's a butler. And these two men are talking with each other. They've had a dream, uh, and they don't understand what these dreams mean. And so, Joseph speaks up, and he says, Hey, listen, dreams belong unto God, and the interpretation thereof. Tell me your dream. I'll ask God, and God will tell me. And so, they tell the dream, and 
Uh, one of the dreams says that in three days the baker is going to be uh, executed and in three days the butler is going to be restored to his place of prominence. And uh, Joseph looks at the butler. He says, just listen, when you get out of here, remember me and lobby on my behalf and try to get me out of here. The Bible says the butler forgot Joseph. He comes out of prison. Uh, the Pharaoh restores uh, the butler to his proper place, and he never gives a thought for two, two more years, never gives a thought of anything about Joseph. One day, Pharaoh, he has a dream, and uh, he doesn't know what to do about it. He doesn't understand. He has a dream about uh, ears of corn. Seven of them are uh, beautiful and full and healthy, and seven of them are withered and pitiful and ugly looking, uh, like that corn you get this time of the year. You know what I'm saying? And uh, the ugly corn eats up the good corn. Then he has another dream. He sees seven cattle. And uh, seven of them are big and fat and, and good looking. And then he sees seven other cattle. And they're pitiful and they're skinny. And they've been eating dirt off the ground and nothing else. And the, the, the skinny cattle eat up the healthy cattle. And uh, he tells this uh, dream to his magicians. They say, we don't know what to tell you about it. We don't know what it means. And then all of a sudden the butler remembers. He says, there was a time I was having a dream. And I didn't understand what it meant. And there was a Hebrew down in prison by the name of Joseph, and maybe he can tell you his dreams. So they take Joseph, they clean him up, they shave him, uh, they allow him to eat and to wash himself, and he comes into Pharaoh's presence, and he says to Pharaoh, the dream that you've had and the interpretation you've had are one. He says, Joseph, there's going to be seven years of plentiful in the country, seven years where uh, there's going to be more food than you're going to know what to do with, but after that there's going to be seven years of famine more fierce than you've ever seen. And so uh, Pharaoh looks at Joseph. He says, all right, Joseph, if you know what this dream is and if you believe this is going to happen, I'm going to put you in charge of all the corn and grain in the land. And so for seven years as the overseer and administrator of the, the I don't know, the ministry of grain and economics. I don't know what they would have called it in Egypt, but uh, Joseph, he, he tends to this national catastrophe and crisis. And it's in this context that his brethren come to him to buy grain and corn Here's what I'm driving at. I'm saying this. Joseph knew his share of trouble. In three profound ways, he had been done wrong by people that he had trusted. Let me say, number one, he was despised by his brethren. Joseph knew what it was to be hated and sabotaged because of that hate. Not only was he despised by his brethren, he was disgraced by Potiphar's wife. Joseph did everything right in that situation, and he still wound up with his integrity in the mud. He did everything right, and he still wound up with his testimony in pieces. Let me tell you, you can't stop people from lying about you. It's just the truth of the matter. There's going to be times people are going to tell things on you and do things wrong to you, and then finally I'd remind you he was deserted by the butler. He was forgotten. There's going to be times in your life when people are going to hate you like Joseph did his brethren and do everything they can to try to stop you living and serving God. There's going to be times people are going to try to disgrace you and, and besmear your name. And it'll seem like there's a campaign to try to wreck your testimony. And there'll be times when simply this, people that you've loved and been good to and done for will just forget about you. He knows what sorrow is. He knows what suffering is. And so when we talk about Joseph's statement here, we're talking about something born out of profound personal experience. He knows what he's talking about. And he makes three statements concerning God's working in his problems that I want to make very quickly to you and then we'll close. Let me say that the first thing he sees when he looks at God's problems is he sees God's permission in his problems. Now, I'm going to go ahead and tell you, of the three thoughts we're going to look at tonight, this is what you're going to have the most trouble with. 
Because none of us like to acknowledge what Joseph acknowledges here. Look back at verses 4 and 5. Joseph said unto his brethren, Come near to me, I pray you. And they came near, and he said, I am Joseph your brother, whom ye sold into Egypt. Okay, so Joseph, he understands who did the selling into Egypt. It is not lost on him how he got there. He understands the hand that his brethren played. Then he says in verse 5, Now therefore be not grieved nor angry with yourselves that ye sold me hither. For God did send me before you to preserve life. Look down at verse 8, and I'll remind you of this, our text again. So now it was not you that sent me hither, but God. Man, that's a big truth. The day that you realize that there's no problem comes into your life if you're a child of God, but what it's entered by the permission of God. There's nothing you go through but what God has first approved, its presence and perfecting work in your life. I'm telling you, we're talking about strong meat. We're not talking about the milk tonight. We're talking about the strong meat. So gird up your loins and steal your minds when you have to realize and recognize that the very thing you're angry at everybody else over is something that God has allowed in your life. Job, of course, is the most explicit example of this. And you know, I've always thought it interesting that we read the book of Job and we get something out of it that Job never got. We know about the first two chapters. We have no reason to believe that Job knew about the first two chapters as he was going through his troubles. And I don't know if before Job left this world that he knew about the first two chapters of the book of Job. But you and I, we read, and before we ever see the first heartache come into Job's life, we see that there's a conversation between Satan and God where Satan is trying to say that Job is fake and false and empty and shallow and hypocritical, and God's saying, no, he's my servant, he's upright, he escheweth evil, he walketh with God, he walks with me. There's this whole contest between God and Satan, and you and I understand that God did not enter into that lightly, but that God did so for Job's good. The end of Job was better than the beginning. We know all that, but Job didn't. Job didn't. And yet somehow he found the wisdom to say, in the midst of it all, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Shall we receive good at the hand of the Lord and not evil? Hey, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job didn't try to say, well, if it's good, it's God. If it's bad, the devil. I got news for you. The devil wants to harm you. He wants to hurt you. But he don't run this universe. God runs this universe. And so at the end of the day, if heartache comes into your life, listen, I'm not saying there aren't some people behind it. I'm saying God is over all of it. He was the source of Joseph's problems. And the truth is this, it'd do, us, it'd do us a lot of good. It'd help us to keep from getting angry about our circumstances, keep from getting sold up about them when we'd realize that none of this took God by surprise and that He is the one that has allowed these things to come into our life. Now listen, that's got to be balanced and measured by Calvary. We've got to look at it and say, if God loved me enough to give His only begotten Son, then He must have a good reason for what I'm going through. But it's a far better path of understanding to acknowledge that God was the source of his problems than for him to go the rest of his life pretending like his brethren were the source of his problems. And so often we sit there and we blame everybody else. But we don't ever give thought to God's active involvement in it. You know why? Because we know better than to blame God. We know we can't blame Him. And if we acknowledge that He's got a hand in it, then we've got to acknowledge there's some kind of providence in it. 
that we may not understand. He, he realized that God was the source of his problems, but then he also realized that God was the sovereign over his problems. Look what it says at the end of verse 5. He says, for God did send me. Not just God let you do that to me. God sent me. So in other words, he looks at his brethren and says, you had a plan, but God had a plan. You had a design behind what you were doing, but God had a grander design behind what He was doing. And you said you sold me, but I say God sent me. He recognizes that God wasn't just the the cause, but God was the king over His problems. Wasn't just the source, He was the sovereign. And that God didn't do this thing casually. God did this thing providentially. Here's the truth. You may not understand what you're going through. You may not be able to make sense out of it. Hey, you may go uh, to your grave and you may leave this world and go to heaven still not knowing about the conversations that heaven has had about your sorrows and troubles. But you mark her down. It don't matter what other folks are trying to do. God has a sending work that He's doing and God has a perfect work that He's doing whether you can see it or not. Now, we'll see here in a moment that Joseph, he does see what God's doing in his life. But Job never did. But it didn't change the fact for both of them that God was doing something in their life, regardless of the trouble they were going through. Now, remember, we do this thing where we build a wall up of of, of blame and of, of bitterness and of anger when we're going through problems and trouble so that we can peek over it and say, it's everybody out there's fault. But the moment we realize it's God in control of it, then we have to humble ourselves and say, Lord, I don't understand, but I know you're in control. And part of that is understanding that God doesn't do anything casually or flippantly. God's never done anything just because. God's never let you cry a single tear just because. God's never let you feel a moment of pain just because. He doeth all things well. And that includes what He's doing in your life. You may not like it. You may not be happy about it. But that doesn't mean that God's not in control over it just because we can't recognize it. So he sees God's permission in his life. He says, well, they tried to do this, but if God's the God over everything, then God must have been the one doing it. And it helped us to realize that there's no one can subvert the will of God. And no one can can force God into doing something that God doesn't want to do. And so if something takes place in our life, listen, it's because God is God over all. And he has permitted it to take place in our life. But then notice that he sees God's providence. In it Now, Joseph, he's looking back at what God's been doing in his life, and he notices two things that are worth mentioning concerning what he can already perceive of God's hand working in his life. Look at verse 6. He says, For these two years hath the famine been in the land, and yet there are five years in the which there shall be neither be earring nor harvest. God sent me before you to preserve a posterity in the earth and to save your lives by great deliverance. Let me say that the first thing that he notices concerning what God's working and and how God is bringing things together in his life and in the lives of others, he acknowledges that despite all of his trouble, despite all of his problems, despite all of his affliction and persecution, that God's work was being done and that he had a hand in it. Now remember, the seven years of plenty has already passed. And now the seven years of famine have set in and they're two years into that And Joseph looks back and he says, hey, you wouldn't even be standing here today. You'd be dying in Canaan if it wasn't for the fact that God brought me to this place. And he recognizes that what he's been doing has been the work of God and has been by the will of God. 
you know, we often don't recognize the work of God in our lives. But he mentions two types of work that are important to acknowledge. He says there's a past work that's been done. When you look back in your life, I'm going to guarantee you something. When you look back at the times of trouble in your life, if you look hard enough, you'll be able to see things that were accomplished that could not have been accomplished any other way. You may not think it was worth it. You may not be happy you went through it. You may have not been the beneficiary of whatever that was. But I promise you, if you look backwards in your life at your greatest moments of trouble, when you were angry or when you were confused, when you were scared, when you didn't know what God was doing, if you look back on it now, there will be things that you have to acknowledge were brought to pass and accomplished that could not have been done any other way. This is what Joseph is doing. He's looking back and he's saying, hey, listen, God's will was to use me to save the world. And I could have never done that if you hadn't sold me into slavery. There was no conceivable path to Egypt's power for Joseph except through that pit, through Potiphar's house, and through the prison. How else would a Hebrew boy have wound up the second most powerful man in the world at just the right time except God had done it the way that he did it? If Joseph had tried to walk into Pharaoh's palace and say, Hey, your Savior's here. Here I am to deliver Egypt. He would have said, You're crazy. Get out of here. I'm going to have him cut your head off. But God was orchestrating things together. There was a, pre- a, a past work that had been done. And I don't I can look back at my life, and some of the most unsavory moments have yielded the greatest results. Things that I didn't want, things that I didn't ask for, things I didn't look for. And listen, I, if, if if I had time, I'm tempted to do it just so you don't get to watch none of the football. Amen? But you know us preachers, we hate the Super Bowl, right? I always thought that growing up. I thought, why do preachers hate the Super Bowl so much? I don't know why. You know, whenever whenever you uh, get ordained in the ministry, they sneak you into a side room and they say, now listen, whatever you do, don't let people know you enjoy football. Okay? <laughs> whatever you do. You'll lose every one of them if you do. I'm tempted to, and I'm not going to take the time to, but there's a part of me that would love to just sit and just talk about God's hand in my life. Things that at the time I didn't understand, but now I can see God's hand so clearly. There's a past work that's been done. But let me say there was also perspective work still left to be done. He says there's been two years of famine, but there's five more. And he says, the reason I've gone through what I've gone through is to accomplish what I've accomplished, but that work is not done yet. And God's got greater things for me in the future. There were for Joseph, let me remind you, that as far as his comfort and leisure, the first seven years were the best because the famine was doing, or, or because the, the, uh, the harvests were so good. But as far as him being exalted to a place of glory and having power, the last seven years were far better for Joseph. Uh, Let me tell you why. Because he literally had the power of life and death in his hands. And so for Joseph, we might say this, that there was more of a work in front of him than behind him. And I just remind you of this. The reason God lets these things come into your life is He ain't done with you. Don't you understand? It's, It's not the Lord's pleasure to see us suffer. It's just the reason that Paul said, for to be absent from the body... Uh, or we are to be absent from the body and present with the Lord. He said, to depart and be with Christ is far better. He said, but I'm in a strait betwixt two. He said, if I remain, it's for your sakes. 
said, if I depart to be with Christ, which is far better, that's for me. But if I remain, he says, it's for your sakes. In other words, he says, listen, if God's leaving me here, it's because he's got a work for me to do. If God's leaving me here, it's because he's not done with me yet. And whenever you're going through trial and affliction, remember, there's a past work, but there's a prospective work. And God's not done with you. And that's why you're going through what you're going through is because God's... Hey, you ain't going through it because God's done forgot about you. He ain't like the butler. He don't forget about you. This ain't happening because God forgot about you. This is happening because God's faithful to you and because He's got a work and a plan for your life. So he sees that God's work is being done. But then notice that he says he can see that God's wisdom was being displayed through his troubles. Look at verse 7. He says, God sent me before you to preserve you a posterity in the earth and to deliver your lives by a great deliverance. Now, we hinted at it a moment ago. But Joseph is saying... I couldn't be where I'm at to save you today had you not sold me into slavery. It's actually one of my favorite stories in the Word of God because of how you can see God working. And, you know, there's times you ever... Can I give you an example? I hope that's okay. You know when you buy presents for your kids on Christmas morning and you're sitting there and you're wrapping the presents the night before and you're sitting there just thinking about the look on their face when they open it. And, you know, there's that moment when you go in on Christmas morning, if they don't wake you up at 4 a.m., amen, but you go in on Christmas morning and you're trying to shake them awake and you're just, you're giddy with anticipation because you can't wait for them to see everything you've prepared for them. When I read the life of Joseph, it's sort of that way. Because we have this bird's eye view. We can see what God's doing. Joseph couldn't see it. And then even beyond that, at least early on he couldn't. And then even beyond that, his brethren didn't see it until right the last second when you watch this interaction that the brethren first come to Egypt and they walk in and there they are face to face with their brother and they don't even know it. Joseph, he treats them harshly. And he speaks harshly to them. He accuses them of being spies. And the whole time you're sitting back there saying... Boy, ain't it going to be something when they see how God's worked this whole thing out. And I don't have time to go through it all, but he sends them away, puts the money back in their bags. He demands they bring Benjamin, the youngest son, and they bring Benjamin back. And, uh, you know, whenever he sends them back to get Joseph or to get Jacob, they put the silver cup in, in Benjamin's bag to try to... And what Joseph's trying to do is he's trying to get them to a point where they'll be broken and acknowledge and admit what they've done to him. He's trying to get them to understand, but the whole time they don't even know it's Joseph. And finally, in the passage, you notice when we read this at the beginning of it, notice the first few verses of this chapter, when it says, Then Joseph could not refrain himself before all of them that stood by. You know what thought brought that to pass is his brethren come before him and they say, Hey, listen, this is happening because we did our brother wrong. Uh, we uh, betrayed our brother. We sold him into slavery. We lied to our father. And when they're finally broken enough, Joseph breaks himself. And he says, oh my, listen, everybody out, I'm your brother, I'm Joseph. When we see this passage, one of the things we can't help but observe is God's profound wisdom in bringing all of this to pass so that at just the right moment, they find themselves standing before their brother who is, for all practical intents and purposes, the king of the world. God's wisdom is mighty and mysterious. And there's two things that he acknowledges God's wisdom has brought about. It's brought about a situation where he can, number one, save his family. In other words, God was ministering to other people's lives through Joseph's sorrows. I don't know if you realize this, but not only are your sorrows changing things in your life, 
Not only are your troubles and problems touching your life, but they're touching the lives of those around you as well. And it could be that the greatest work God's doing isn't even what He's doing in your life. It's what He's doing in somebody else's life through you. I remember being a young man. This is a funny story. And I, I, until God just brought it to my mind and heart right at this moment, I didn't intend on sharing it with you and hadn't thought about it for years. I remember, and some of you know, uh, Brother Morgan Lester, the pastor at Ball Road. Morgan grew up in this church. I remember being a youngster. You wouldn't believe this because he looks younger than me. Morgan's a little bit older than me. And I remember being a youngster in high school and sitting and listening to a goofy-looking young man with a broken heart weep in a chapel service over what was going on between him and a loved one, a family member. And I remember sitting there and listening to this young preacher weep broken over what he was praying and begging God to do. It wasn't even the service part. He was just telling something that was going on in his life. And that made a profound impact on a young high school student sitting there in that chapel service. Morgan didn't even know it. I don't even know if Morgan knows it to this day. He was going through heartache. But you know what I saw? I saw a young preacher being genuine, which is something that I'll, be, I'll confess this to you when you grow up under Christian education. You don't always see the most genuine people. And I saw this young man broken over what he was going through, and that made a profound impact on me. I don't know if Morgan realized it then. I don't guess he'd realize it now. But through what he was going through, God used it to touch the lives of a young man sitting in that congregation that nobody would have guessed God would make a preacher out of. I'm saying this, that God's ministering to the people around you, and you may see it and you may not see it, but that doesn't change the fact that God's doing it. Then let me remind you that he acknowledges not only God had a plan to save his family, but God had a plan to save the fallen in this world through Joseph's suffering. Look at verse number 7 again. He says, God sent me before you to preserve you a posterity in the earth. What does that mean? In other words, God sent me to save you so that you would have descendants and a presence in this earth. I'd remind you that of the men that were standing before him, one of them was by the name of Judah. And it was from Judah that would spring forth the tribe of Judah. And it was out of the tribe of Judah in the land of Bethlehem Ephrata that a virgin would conceive and bear a child and his name would be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father. He is the Lion of the tribe of Judah. And he could have never been born if Joseph hadn't been sold into slavery. If Joseph hadn't been sold into slavery, the famine would have came nonetheless, but he wouldn't have been over Egypt. He couldn't have preserved Egypt. If he hadn't preserved Egypt, then the, uh, the, uh, his brethren could not have traveled to Egypt to buy their grain, to buy their corn, and he couldn't have brought them there and shielded them for the rest of the famine, and they would have died in the land of Canaan. And it all started when his wicked brethren decided to sell him into slavery. You and I sit here saved tonight because Joseph's brethren sold him into slavery. We wouldn't know the name of Jesus, and the name of Jesus wouldn't mean anything if they hadn't sold him into slavery. You wouldn't have had that moment when you knelt broken before God and was born again by the grace of God if Joseph's brethren hadn't sold him into slavery. I'm saying this, you don't know what God's doing in your troubles. You don't know what God's doing in your troubles. There's no limit to what God could be bringing to pass through your problems and what you're suffering. Well, let me give you one final thought, and I'm done tonight. He sees God's permission. He sees God's providence. But notice he also can't help but see God's promotion in his life. Look at verse 8. It 
says, so now it was not you that sent me hither, but God. And this is interesting because I can imagine probably Joseph chuckled a little bit when he says this. He would say later on in chapter number 50, after his father Jacob died and his brethren were afraid, they thought now that Jacob's dead, Joseph's going to kill us. And Jacob says, hey, listen, don't be afraid. You meant it for evil. But he says, God meant it for good. And I can imagine that Joseph must have chuckled a little to himself when he thought, twelve years ago I was laying in the bottom of that pit, and you're standing up above me laughing. And you thought I was going to die in that pit. And now here I sit on the throne of Egypt, and there you are on your face before me, begging me to give you grain to feed your family. Boy, aren't God's counsels mysterious and wonderful. And so he says it this way in verse number 8. He says, So now it was not you that sent me hither, but God. And he hath made me a father to Pharaoh, and lord of all his house, and a ruler throughout all the land of Egypt. In other words, he says this, You did everything you could to rob me of my life. But God did everything He could to exalt me in life. And He has to acknowledge that throughout all of His suffering, He's been repaid many, many times over for what He's gone through. Imagine if He had not been sold into slavery. He'd still be a shepherd in the land of Israel. In fact, we could say this, He'd probably be a dead shepherd. He would have died along with the rest of His brethren. But now He sits, the most powerful man in the world, in fact, the way Pharaoh described it, he said, only in the throne will I be greater than you. In other words, the only, the only person that ain't your boss, Joseph, is me. That's it. You're the most powerful man in the world. And God had brought it to the past. Listen, not through, his, not through his comfort, but through his affliction. Not through things being easy, but through things being tumultuous. God had brought it to pass. And there's two things he acknowledges that God has done through this and brought to pass that has blessed him that couldn't have been done any other way. Number one, he acknowledges the reversal of his position. Think about where Joseph has gone in this time. He's went from being a kid to a convict to the counselor over Pharaoh. He's gone from being a slave to from being a shepherd to being a slave to being a sovereign. He's gone from the, the field and the fold to the prison and finally to the palace. God has done a complete 180 in his circumstances. But the path was not that of leisure. It was that of suffering. God had reversed his position in life. Number one, in dignity. He's now a father to Pharaoh. Used to, he was the one everybody bossed around the shepherd's field. Used to, he was the youngest, and he was despised, and he was hated. And when he told his dreams, they made fun of him and mocked him. But now the most powerful man in the world will stop everything to hear Joseph talk about dreams. Only God could bring that to pass. Not only with his dignity, but concerning his duty. He began by watching over sheep. Then he went to watching over the household of an Egyptian uh, overseer. And then he went to watching over uh, the prison And every time God did something to increase his experience and capability until finally God has been preparing him to oversee the largest economy in the world at that time. He is literally the ruler over all the food in the entire known world. God has reversed things greatly. God has done things in his life that no one else could do in his life. But God has chosen the path of affliction 
instead of the path of affluence. And the fact is, in your life, by the time God's done with you, hey, listen, God makes everything beautiful in its time. He don't always make everything beautiful in the time we think He ought to have it done in, but He makes all things beautiful in its own time. He's done this in Joseph's life. But I can't help but remind you of one more thing God brought to pass that I think it's real easy to skip over. Now, remember what things look like if you were standing in this throne room. Here's Joseph, and he's sitting there regal and royal upon the throne. And down before him, there's eleven of his brethren bowed on their face before him. You know what God did? Remember what it says in Genesis 37. In fact, I'm going to read it to you if that would be all right. I want to take a moment. Verse number 5, the Bible says, And Joseph dreamed a dream. And he told it to his brethren, and they hated him yet the more. And he said unto them, Here I pray you this dream which I have dreamed. For behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and lo, my sheaf arose, and also stood upright. And behold, your sheaf stood round about and made obeisance to my sheaf. And his brethren said to him, Shalt thou indeed reign over us, or shalt thou indeed have dominion over us? And they hated him yet the more for his dreams and for his words. Twelve years has passed. It took God twelve years to bring it to pass. But now here's Joseph on the throne. And just exactly what God said would happen, did happen. It didn't happen in the way... I promise you, when Joseph had that dream, he didn't wake up and think to himself, well, I better get busy going and being sold into slavery so I can be uh, lied about by some wicked woman so that I can be forgot about in prison so that I can be left there to rot and then be exalted to the height of power and and, and prominence in in Egypt. He didn't think that. He didn't understand how God was going to do it. But God knew how He was going to do it. Listen, God always keeps His promises. And God kept His promise in Joseph's life. God's got, uh, do you understand? God has a completely perfect, unblemished, unbroken record of keeping every promise He's ever made. He's not going to start with you. And you may not be able to see how He's going to bring it to pass. And you may be entering right now into a storm, or you may, may be in the midst of a storm that you didn't ask for and you don't want, and if truth be told, you're a little upset and mad about but it doesn't change the fact that God's over your storm just like He's over everything else in your life. And the day that you can learn that nobody can do anything to you, nobody can do anything to you without God having first allowed it as a child of God. I'm talking about saved people. The day that you realize that will be the day that you get victory over the people that try to do ill and evil towards you. It'll be the day that you gain victory over the circumstances of life that buffet and berate you. It'll be the day that you begin to see in your problems God's providence and recognize that God's perfect in everything He does. And you may not understand it, and you may not be able to figure it out, and you may not like it, but it doesn't change the fact that God's doing a perfect work in your life and that He has a plan for all of it.